Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I'm your host. This week I was joined by a lady trio. <laughs> Three ladies, Annie Moon, Susie Stein and Lisa Rose, all from Be The Difference, uh, an organisation that helps philanthropists become more strategic about their philanthropic efforts. And we had a really great conversation on how they, you know, if you're into philanthropy, how can you be better strategic, how you can engage cross-sector partnerships, multi-stakeholder partnerships, cross-border partnerships, and also how you can be local yet global in your efforts. So I'd encourage you to really listen in, enjoy, and spread, share the love. Thank you. Hi, ladies. Welcome to The Connected Generation. I'm so excited to have you today. We've got Annie, Susie, and Lisa from Be The Difference. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks very much. Awesome. Awesome. I'll start with you, Annie, because you're the founder of this business. Um, You are really focused on helping philanthropists, um, helping them live their values, getting more strategic about philanthropic efforts, but really just wanted to know, how did you get to this point of establishing and founding um, Be The Difference? So I founded, um, first of all, thanks very much for having having the team um, joining you today. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, so coming back to Be The Difference, I originally founded it in 2017. And what I realised was that there was just this massive kind of mismatch um, between there's there's a real need for philanthropy advisory services um with the great wealth transfer um coming up and different things happening and next gen um and that there was just a real paucity of philanthropy advisory services um and you know from research what was offered um wasn't always the best experience um and so I've, I'm actually from a background, um, I trained originally as a youth worker and community mm. development worker. Um, and so from that, um, I've got three decades experience in the impact space doing, you know, grassroots, strategic, cross-sector, um, multi-stakeholder par- partnerships, all sorts of things. Mm. And I just could envisage that, Actually, if I could leverage this expertise for people who were really wanting to make a difference, then it made absolute sense. Um, And, you know, to help people bring their values alive and that, you know, they could do so much more. And so where I was coming from was that not only is it sort of about helping them to go the next you know to on the next stage be it strategy or implementation but really understanding you know strategic philanthropy it's not just about um you know it's it's not just about giving money it's about really engaging thoughtful engagement and seeing how else you can really make a difference what what, you know be it networks um Mm. be it your time and Mm. then on top of that kind of understanding actually how what everyone else in the ecosystem offers and how you can really make a difference um so we've got four four pillars um which uh, impact that i lead on um philanthropy lisa leads on uh responsible businesses susie and then we've got across 
cross-cutting one um, that is learning. And we try to offer a holistic approach because what we what we realized was, you know, a philanthropist is often a business person, an individual. Um, so they're giving across mm -hmm. lots of, in different ways. And it's really important that that is aligned. Um, mm -hmm. So we take this sort of holistic approach, which is where, you know, all of us leverage our skill set um, depending on what needs to be done. Thank oh, you. I love it. Um, there's so much to unpack there. I love what you just ended on, that a philanthropist is often a business person. Um, yes. That's one. And two, philanthropy is beyond giving or financial capital. It's also in, can entail intellectual capital, knowledge capital, um, social capital, political capital. So it's it's a broader conversation than just writing a check for a foundation or setting up a foundation, you know, supporting the Duke of Edinburgh or, or what have you. So, so I love that conversation. I'd love to rope you in here, Susie. Can you tell us more about you and how did you get to where you are? And um, love to hear more about your specialty with responsibility. Yeah, sure. Um well, I'm born and bred South African, um, which was a really interesting time to sort of grow up. Um, when I started school, there were no black kids in my class, no black kids in my school. I went through a, a time that a lot of my friends' parents found very scary, uh, where we had a referendum and they asked if people wanted to change the society. Um mm. And people said yes. And that was about in the 90s, the early 90s. And um, it was really interesting because it was, you know, people lived according to what they knew. And mm. one day they decided to vote for change. And it kick-started quite a scary time of transition. Um, but it was really fascinating growing up, learning about it. Um, the interim constitution came into place. Nelson Mandela was released. And sort of overnight you know, the Bill of Rights and human rights became supreme. And people were literally sat down and told, you know, it's it's no longer cool and acceptable to treat people differently based on their race. And, you know, people sat down and had a look at their lives and they, they sort of, in their car, they looked and their dog was sitting next to them and, like, the black people helping them and working for them were in, in the back of the truck. And overnight... They changed that around, and it was it was a weird time, and there was people were very scared, but it was it was interesting, and especially when you grow up, you know, only knowing a certain way. Um, but it was fantastic, um, exciting, a lot of hope with Nelson Mandela. I mean, he's just an absolute saint. The way he dealt with everything, just an incredible, humble person that wasn't perfect, but um, you know, withstood a lot. And came out with nothing but respect for human dignity and, mm. you know, in his heart and, and changed the whole country and in a very pretty smooth, you know, relatively speaking way um, compared to what people could have expected. So that was like the backdrop of my upbringing um, and it was really a great time to live. Um, I went into law because I enjoyed languages. I didn't really research what the lifestyle was about. <laughs> So I, you know, 
worked hard, I built a sexy corporate legal career and it made me miserable um, mm. because it was unsustainably long hours. It was just basically helping rich people get richer and then they were absolutely floored by the bill when it arrived. So it wasn't mm. rewarding for me. I knew I wanted more. I'd always been interested in community stuff and volunteering. In particular, I volunteered at a, a safe house in um, the center of Johannesburg in Hillbrow. It's a very, very dangerous place. Um, but these children kind of won me over. Um, I'm not really, I wasn't, I didn't want to go and play with children, but I arrived mm-hmm. in a place where children wanted to do their homework and they needed help. Um, they had nothing like not a toothbrush, not a piece of paper. I had nothing. Um, and we went weekly and we did homework with them and it blew my mind. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I was so inspired at the difference you can make. You know, we identified kids that were dyslexic and falling through the cracks and just you're able to just change someone's life if you can identify something like that early. So I was very passionate about education. But I went into law. I was miserable. Um, I was stuck. I couldn't admit defeat. I couldn't take a step backwards. I really didn't know what to do. Um, and I was asking everyone else and I was getting so confused um, and just miserable. And eventually I decided to travel. I, you know, I said, no one can argue with that. It doesn't look like a step back. You know, Maybe I can go get away from law and just find myself. Um, came to the UK, really struggled to find a different job. I had no varied experience on my CV. I hadn't diversified at all. I'd just been working, working, working. So I took a legal job, but it was a contract role. And that was my compromise to myself to give myself a bit more headspace. Um, Mm. And eventually I left after two years. I said, no, seriously, guys, I don't want to do law. And I was really lucky. I was invited back um, and I ended up running the bank's social investment program, um, which was incredibly well set up, very strategic. Um, It really appealed to me because one of the focuses was education. One was entrepreneurship. Um, And exactly what you guys were talking about just now, it was about taking people who they're quite time poor, but quite Mm -hmm. sort of money rich. But my main mandate was to get them involved in community initiatives in the sense of volunteering. So get them up from away from their desk, get them into the community, open people's eyes as to how people live, the problems that people are facing um, and it was so impactful because you cannot unsee something like that once you've seen it. It changes mm. your whole approach. And, I mean, people were motivated by different things, but they got involved to varying degrees. It was a fantastic program, and the impacts were really phenomenal. Um, one of the programs was about um, helping NEETS, so youngsters, you know, not in education and employment, but particularly difficult to reach ones where people had sort of written them off, Um, getting them involved, inviting them into the bank, exposing them to a different definition of what success could look like to -hmm. what they've seen in their community. And it was really powerful stuff. And by the time I left, youngsters that have been on our program since the age of 14 were graduating from university, applying to internships, graduate programs at the bank, and succeeding, mm. competing with other candidates, you know, for sought-after roles. So their whole families are, are changed by that. And, you know, um, they were then referring their younger siblings into the program. So it was really transformational stuff. 
um, yeah, and I, I then left and I started a family. So I had my little boy. And since then, I've been consulting. Um, and Annie is one of the amazing connections I met. And, and we've been working together, um, you know, on such fantastic, exciting, impactful projects. Um, yeah, and a, a, as part of my journey, I've continued learning. I've become um, a trained bee leader which I find to be a really robust framework for companies wanting to properly manage their impact. No greenwashing here, but mm-hmm. actually to take the practical steps required to be held accountable to improve year on year. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's more difficult than my corporate legal career, but it's, it's massively more fulfilling and impactful. Oh, I love it. I love what you said about you cannot unsee what you've seen and just that importance of getting out into the community and, you know, um, for inspiration and to get closer to stakeholders that would be impacted by impact and philanthropy projects. But before we go deeper into that, I'd love to, um, you know, hear from you, Lisa, and hear more about your journey as well, particularly on how you got to where you are today and to hear more about your work in development, philanthropy, and sustainability. Yeah, I feel slightly overwhelmed that my story isn't going to be as good as Susie's. So (laughs) apologies in advance. Um, So I started life as a a military engineer, you know, and I think people mistake the military as as something that it's not. Most people join up with a desire to serve and not knowing how else to serve, but to actually, you know, be part of civil society and, and do their part. So I served nearly 18 years in the Royal Air Force as an engineer. My last tour of Afghanistan working with um, what we call the stabilization unit. So doing transparency and governance in Helmand province in 2010. Since I left the Air Force after that, I've been working mostly across Africa, but a little bit back in Afghanistan doing development from digging up landmines to building schools and seeing and living it for real, you know, nearly four years without water and electricity in the bush in, in Africa, which was just the most amazing experience trying to actually understand how it really is. But mm. actually, you can never really understand how it really is, because no matter how much you live like a local person, I always had health insurance. I always had a way out. I always mm-hmm. had an opportunity to say, no, I've had enough. Thank you very much. I'm walking away. Nobody else around me had that. So really trying to understand how unbelievably fortunate we are, no mm. matter, you know, no matter working class background in the UK, but still incredibly fortunate. Um, and then I spent a couple of years in India creating supporting with funding from the Indian government for purpose for profit startups so Mm. using technology to build um, socioeconomic growth um, but with a profit-based so creating jobs creating things that help people so we would do things like curate questions such as how to use technology to help farmers increase their earnings and then use that to help the young people to create their businesses out of that. I came back to the UK a few years ago and worked on strategy development in philanthropy across the UK millionaire population. So trying to take a big picture view on law, on development, on mindset change, on how to actually use case studies and stories to inspire people to be better givers. And I'm currently working um, back in international entrepreneurship um, as working across 17 different countries, supporting entrepreneurs in lower middle income countries. And 
I guess my view on philanthropy is is also slightly different in that I've also been a recipient of major donor funding in many guises in different places, and some of them absolutely amazing, and some of them creating demands which actually are counterproductive to our work. And seeing across that scope from pure donations to supporting social enterprises and understanding that investment from my own investment to anybody's investment in with or, or how we use our money is so important and it's it's a holistic approach it's not a we give money um, and then we invest money investing ethically all the way to gifting through social impact investing is a really important part of thinking about our wealth amazing you said your story is not interesting <laughs> I think we all kind of I think that's a, a human thing though we kind of belittle what it is we've experience like what, what it is we know um your story is phenomenal your story is cool <laughs> um on to the next question I had um so with like you know next gens being with the great wealth transfer you were talking about and philanthropy is increasingly um taking prominence in family enterprises what are you seeing? What are the common challenges that next gens are facing with philanthropy and how can they how can they overcome these? Lisa? Yeah, sure. So in my last job, we did um, a huge piece of research actually into next generation wealth creators. And I think one of the things that we learned is that e- even by bifurcating that group, there's not one homogenous next gen person you know you can't define them put them in a box and say this is what you should do it's really important to treat people as individuals with individual needs and wants yeah um so from people who are inheriting and annie talked about the the great wealth transfer to to those people who are making wealth for the first time in their family history there's quite a diversity of thinking um and also a massive diversity about understanding Um, what the charity sector is, how civil Mm. society works, what the third sector does for for the country, for the world. And Mm. I think that there's this, there are some amazing inspirational next geners that I have met who have devoted their life, especially those inheritors, to actually genuinely understanding the, Mm. the responsibilities that come with their wealth and how they can use that for positive effect. And, and these, these, some of them, most of them are girls, to be fair, are, are unbelievable. And, and then you've got like the the guys inheriting, um, sorry, the guys making wealth for the first mm-hmm. time, you know, mm-hmm. in professional careers, working really hard, having maybe had their parents sacrifice something in order to get them the education to give them that boost up into into this world. And, and they are struggling more with understanding the responsibilities of their wealth, but also, you know, the other responsibilities to family, to aging relatives, to young kids, to investing and and finding that actually putting charitable giving into this incredibly busy lifestyle as you build a family and a career and, and a house it is actually fitting charity and is actually quite difficult. And so it becomes the convenient way is is smaller donations things that are in your face rather than actual long-term strategic looking at how philanthropy fits into your life and making a plan. And that plan is thought of as something that you do when you retire, when all of this is behind you, because wealth is fragile to to people who are creating it, right? Especially now when we look at, um, 
you know, job fragility in the COVID scenario, people are very much thinking about themselves first. And that's perfectly understandable, you know, if you have a family to look after, that charity becomes something that you think of last almost, rather than something mm. that becomes part of of your financial plan. Mm. Fantastic. Um, the piece on people being kind of unaware of the importance of the third sector is so important. Um, and I'm glad that there are people within your community that are taking time to drive delve deeper on that and also be catalysts for change through that sector. I loved what you said about there's no homogeneity here. Um, it's plenty heterogeneity. There's not one archetype of a next genre. So I love that because I'm all about that. Um, wanted to ask um, on multi-sector partnerships, Annie, um, for those that are kind of probably new to philanthropy and what's the importance of actually partnering with different sectors and how can they pursue these effectively? Thanks for that. Um, Yes, I think the value of cross-sector, multi-stakeholder partnerships um, is incredible, but it's really understanding how they work and what different people bring to the table. So in terms of what, um, in terms of what, it's really about understanding for the families, actually understanding um, how these work and what they can add to it. So from their point of view, um, they come with their their family values. They come with possibly money, possibly a business. So you've already got to sort of a family and a business coming in um, and they've got they may well have a whole legacy of perhaps different types of, um, you know, they, they may, for example, have very close connections with the local community or something. So really understanding what they have in the first place to bring to the table. Um, then it's actually about looking at um, what else it is that, um, you know, what else, what are the causes that they want to work around, you know, and help help people um so at that point um it's really important to actually start you know as Susie said you know the one you can't unsee anything it's really important to actually that it's not for example it's not just the homeless people um Mm. but actually those are real people with experiences with views um and actually they're the ones that know or have a very clear idea of you know where the starting point is for working with them so it's if at all possible um it's important to engage with the people that you want that you want to serve but in a way that works so it may well be that perhaps um there's an advocate who's working with them to have that dialogue um or you know speaking to them along with the community groups that already support them and have that rapport with them um then you've got the other uh, the the other stakeholders kind of in the room and so you know as you mentioned um it may well be that um they're they're sort of the academic side um and Mm -hmm. how that the, the extra dimension that that can add and you've got um local authorities or governance governments or whoever you know the people that 
uh, sort of the policy and the legal framework. Um, and as well as that, you've also got the local um, uh, the local voluntary and community sector. And these are the guys that uh, they're going to have, um, you know, they have their missions as with the local authorities. So they have to work within that. Um, but these guys have years and years of expertise. So, you know, really bringing all these around the table with someone who understands how to facilitate and broker a partnership and have lots of conversations with different people in the background mm-hmm. um, is really, really important. Um, and I think the start, the starting point for the families is to really, first of all, be very, very thoughtful about what they do. I mean, I always say don't don't dive in, mm. you know, take a step back and, you know, perhaps bring someone in who you can work with um, and go in with a really sort of open mind um, mm. and, you know, understand that there's lots of different ways of of doing things um you know it's okay to fail you can do something um you can plan for perhaps a year's program so there's an exit strategy or you know so there's lots of different ways that they can do this and look to build it awesome awesome and for families that are interested in cross-border impact because i i come across a lot of next geners that are really passionate about impact investing and philanthropy and not just in their local communities, but also on a global scale to see the needle being moved on different social issues um, across the world. For those that are interested in that, how best can they go about that? Could you say the question again, please? No problem. Um, I come across a lot of next gens that are super passionate about impact investing and philanthropy, um, not just in their local communities, but really seeing the needle being moved on different social issues on a global scale, um, really seeking to see greater cross-border impact. Um, For those folks that are, you know, want to move the needle on issues in halfway across the world, how can they actually go about this if they're new to this field? Absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing is to understand that there are, um, for example, there are organizations that support um next gen um next gen leaders um who they can they offer um peer support if you like and there's different chapters around the world so there's a kind of infrastructure there already um and in terms of actually looking at um cross border or even global um I would always come back to the kind of the framework of the sustainable development goals, because they actually, you know, that that is very much of, um, if you like, it's a to do list of the critical issues that we're facing at the moment. So to to kind of work through that and then to actually look at um perhaps who is doing um, other work in other areas. Um, and it, it may well be um, one of one of my colleagues. Um, she's very active. She's a philanthropist and change maker in mental health. And she has actually taken um, very much a global view with what she's doing. And so, again, she has she has got very, very strategic and she's looking at who and how she partners with different people who can help her elevate her impact. 
Um, and so that has gone right up to um, her actually having a blog on mental health on the mm. um, I think it's on the Who's blog page or the World Economic Forum, but really having that impact. Um, mm. And I think uh, Susie and I actually worked with um, an, a social entrepreneur in South Africa and um, she was really interested in in helping um, helping women that were running wanted to set up micro enterprises so that they would then be able to um, lift themselves out of poverty and um, she was she was looking for she wanted to work out who could help strategically who could help her with funding this to make it happen and so Susie and I undertook a piece of work that really took a global viewpoint and looked at lots of different dimensions um, of different people that um, different angles on how they could work to do this um, and so we were able to uncover lots of different opportunities um, and one that I remember was you know actually the um, diaspora can really are really interested in you know their country their home country and we're looking for opportunities to support that um and then as well as that uh was looking for example through the domestic violence lens um that there was funding around that and actually if you can help lift people out of um poverty that gave um the women more opportunities so they therefore had more um more choices if you like to change their situation if they wanted um Susie was there anything you wanted to add to that piece of work that we did yeah I think it, you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of there was someone within the community locally on the ground speaking to the beneficiaries but then there was also kind of a link um the overseas funders there was some kind of motivation why they wanted to focus in that area and often it was based on lived experience or where they came from so they they understood a bit about the landscape um but i think what was good about the approach um with their client of ours was they wanted to do the research first. There was no sort of barreling in, making assumptions about the needs, making assumptions about what worked best. It, it was very much researching and understanding what's gone before, what works, what doesn't, you know. And I think you can avoid a lot of pitfalls um, by not making those assumptions. So that's pretty key. You can't just assume that across border the issues are all going to be the same. Mm -hmm. um, I also know a lot of organisations they won't go into a country to support them if they know that the government structures are not supportive, if there'll be resistance. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been some hard lessons learned and that's, that's why. So, you know, you want to go into a community where, you know, there's an openness for you to be there. I mean, I guess th there's probably a counter argument that says, you know, sometimes you need to go in there and expose what's happening at a governance level um but yeah so i've seen different approaches but it's definitely a factor to take on board in terms of 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 what's going to make what's going to make it work um so i guess just very much having your eyes open to those factors mm. incredible great to have an example also um just the last question for change makers um what 
communities or associations would you recommend them joining? I think if I can lead on this one, um, in terms of philanthropists, if they're really, if they're based um, in the UK, for example, um, I would recommend that they speak to their community foundation um, because community foundations are a global network, um, but they actually have a real bird's eye view of what is going on in the local um, area and they will often run grants programs on behalf of corporates and on behalf of philanthropists so if people are looking um, for a way to give that is quite structured is is immediately into their local area then I think that's a very positive um, way for them to do that. Um, there's also, um, it's not, not quite local, um, but one of the organisations that we've worked with is called WINGS and WINGS is, um, it's a membership organisation but it has all of its members are global and they have what are called the members of philanthropy support organizations so what they do is within the members within their own um, countries or regions they actually support the philanthropy sector so again they've got a very detailed knowledge of what's going on the current political environment Um, so I would suggest that that is also another place for them to um, to start in terms of really finding out what's going on Um, what I would advise against is anyone kind of throwing themselves into, for example, the local voluntary sector or, I mean, great to get some volunteering experience. But mm. I think that um, there is always a danger that um, someone could burn out or mm. that they get a lot of asks that they can't manage. Of Can we have money? Um, which is, you know, is very sort of it's short termism and you know mm. I, I for me personally I think it's about um choosing and deciding you know what feels right and take a strategic approach um Lisa and Susie do you want to add anything I think it's like any club right you have to find people that you respect so you need to really do some research into understanding what the community is doing and if it's aligned with your your goals and I think that there are from the global communities like the wings support to to small local communities where people are really doing something really important but I think the one thing that you need to be capable of is making that commitment that makes it work this is not a short-termism it's not an ego trip it's actually doing something for somebody else that makes a difference and swanning in and then swanning out can be even more destructive than doing nothing. So taking that do no harm lens into into real consideration to find a community that that you actually want to spend time with and can be part of for the longer term is actually more important. Making sure that you do your research to make sure that they are actually delivering what they say they're going to be delivering. And so the credibility of places like Annie mentioned, like the community foundations can be really important in that. But sometimes smaller groups where it's really personal can can really keep people motivated to keep on going because they feel real ownership of what they're doing. Oh, wow. This has been incredible, ladies, full of so many tips and debunking kind of, I wouldn't say myths, but just um, widely held beliefs that folks just it comes from a good place an altruistic place but just is not as impactful so this has been 
phenomenal thank you um if anyone would like to work with you get hold of you how best can they reach you so we've got a website which is www.bethedifference.services and then we've also got the email is hello at be the difference.services we've got a linkedin page uh we're on facebook we're on twitter our twitter handle is at good synergy and then um you know we're always open to just chatting to people and you know for them to bounce ideas around and get them started or help them continue or review um where they their family um the the next generation or their business uh where they are on their philanthropy journey or their impact journey um and yeah we're always very happy to start a conversation with people amazing amazing well thank you so much ladies i've had a really great time with you on the show today thank you too it's been an absolute privilege to join you and um i'm sure that the team will agree as well thank you from me Thanks very much. Yeah, cheers. It's been very interesting. Thank you. Wow. Oh, my goodness. These ladies were on fire. (laughs) So much there. So much there. I'd love to just highlight and unpack. Um, I love that you said that a philanthropist is often a business person. And I think this is really important because quite often, um, whilst the motive is really important, being a philanthropist and trying to seek positive change in the social space, often motive is not sufficient to bring about the most effective change. By that I mean sustainability. And often entrepreneurs have a mindset for sustainability. Ultimately, I'm of the strongest view that um, of a strong view that um, it's a business is really the most sustainable way to to bring about change. And so we need the infusing of this business mindset in the social space to bring about sustainable change. So I think that's really important. The second thing she said that I really loved was um, being a philanthropist is not just about giving financial capital. It's really mobilizing all strands of capital, um, knowledge, relationship capital, um, intellectual, political capital, and bringing these about to bring about change, right? So it's not just about passively writing a check. It's really, it requires applying oneself, and that requires head space, heart space, time space (laughs) to bring about the greatest change. But I think families are uniquely placed, uh, uniquely positioned to bring about this positive change. Um, They are more likely than other groups to bring about this positive change, which I can unpack on a future episode because it's too meaty for just an outro. (laughs) And my last point, but I think the most important point, is this tension between local yet global. And we see it as business owners. We, We face a tension in being locally relevant but globally relevant. And there's this pursuit of wanting to expand internationally Um, but also be locally relevant. But I loved what she said when she said, you cannot unsee what you've seen and the importance of getting out into the community. And this is where the tension plays out, is that you would most likely be able to bring about more effective change in your local community because you see and you feel the issues that are on the ground than across the world. Um, So it's navigating this tension well, Um, If you're going to collaborate with other folks to bring about, you know, in global projects, ensure that there is a partner that is locally entrenched. 
that does understand the nuances on the ground and the issues that the communities face so that you can bring about and customise solutions that will bring about positive change for them. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless you.